Well, we've come to the fourth of our study in the five solas, or that's the Latin word for the alone or onlys of the Reformation. And I must confess that the one we come to tonight is my favorite. And the reason is it speaks so clearly, so directly, so demonstrably about the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm amazed at the speed at which our culture is changing. I, I think I've, I've seen more change in the last five or ten years than I've seen in the, the rest of my lifetime. It's especially true regarding how people understand the gospel and its exclusivity. Understand that the exclusivity of the gospel is directly tied to Jesus and his claims to exclusivity. In other words, that he is the only way to be saved. It used to be that the question was asked, is it true? And now we're asking, does it offend anyone? Tolerance has become a a cultural and personal uh, virtue, and a vulture too, (laughs) virtue. (laughs) And intolerance has almost become the unforgivable sin. In fact, the word tolerance has really become a supposed password for unlocking acceptance and unity and peace among differing ideas and opinions and political affiliations and even religions. If we would just be more tolerant It'll be Rodney King theology, right? Can't we all just get along? And by its own definition, however, tolerance must involve overlooking and sometimes compromising one's personal convictions. You have to do that if you're going to tolerate an opposing opinion, especially if they are mutually exclusive and diametrically opposed. You know, I remember very much my geometry teacher being intolerant about theorems and postulates. The shortest distance between two points wasn't sometimes a straight line. It was always a straight line. An equilateral triangle always has three equal sides, right? That's the definition. A right angle always has 90 degrees. It's interesting that that we'll allow the sciences to be intolerant, but religion not to be. Water always freezes at 32 degrees. That's not tolerable if you say, well, I like 35 better Directions are also intolerant. Suppose a, a kind lady stops at our church and afterwards and she finds you and she says, listen, I, I am looking at how to get from here to Topeka, which is directly west of Kansas City, correct? Would it be tolerant to tell her, tell you what, why don't you just take any road you like? All roads end up in Topeka. Everything. I mean, just take any road and, 
and eventually you'll get to Topeka. Well, that, that, would, that would be, certainly be tolerant, but it wouldn't be true, right? What if I said, hey, what, I want you to go to St. Louis, then D.C., then New York, then Florida, and you'll find Topeka, Kansas. It's ridiculous. It's, it's silly. As absurd as that is, many use the same logic about how to get to heaven. Well, there's many paths. They, they all get there. How do you get to heaven? Just pick a path. Ever heard this one? As long as you're sincere enough, God will grade you on a curve and let you in. If your heart is full of whatever you believe, then he'll say, well done, good and faithful. Enter by whatever road you want, my good and faithful servant. Well, that leads us to ask about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the reason is, as we'll see in a moment, Jesus claimed in John 14, verse 6, that he personally was the way and the truth and the life and that no one would come to God the Father except through him. Tonight we're looking at solus Christus, Christ alone. Now in the Reformation, and remember all of these five solas were formed as a, uh, a reaction, a theological allergy against the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It was a response. It was a pushback. Nowhere was the divide more severe between the Protestants and Catholicism, nor is it today any more severe than in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. By faith alone we receive Christ alone because of his grace alone. Really, the, the doctrine of solus Christus is, is about who Jesus is, about what Jesus has done, and here's the important word, it's about his sufficiency. Is Jesus sufficient to save a person from sin and death and certain eternity in hell? Is his death sufficient to pay for the sins of those who would believe? Or is it insufficient? Does it lack something? And do we continue to add something by sacrifices, by a mass, by our own good works? Martin Luther could not have said it any clearer. In fact, we could probably read this and walk home. Luther said, I teach that people should put their trust in nothing but Jesus Christ alone, not in their prayers, not in their merits, not in their own good deeds, end quote. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You know, we have a crisis, I think, in contemporary evangelicalism, and it's, it's really manifest in a lot of areas, but nowhere more centrally than in our, the extreme version of the charismatic movement. Because what this does is it begins to put faith, not in Christ, but it begins to put faith in faith. In other words, if I believe enough, my faith is in my belief. And if I, if I exercise enough belief, then, then God will give me an attaboy and I'll, I'll make it. And he'll grant me what I want and make me richer than my wildest dreams. 
The point is that the battle over the exclusivity of Christ, that salvation is through Christ alone, is not simply or merely relegated to the Reformation and that, that historical period in which it flourished. Even today, not only in Catholicism, but in some sectors of evangelicalism, people say your faith is in faith. Your faith is in you. Your faith is in someone, but your faith is not resting and rested in Christ. Well, where does this show up most prominently? It showed up most prominently in the original uh, 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 knee-jerk and reaction in the Protestant Reformation in the, the Catholic understanding of the Mass. Now, I, I had a lot of quotes. I was going to t- take you through Roman, Catholic, uh, Roman Catholicism and their understanding of the Mass. I'd rather tell you again a story that happened to my wife and me when we were in St. Peter's Basilica. Um, it's got to be some 10 or 15 years ago. It was the first time we were there. And I had known about uh, Catholicism's understanding that in the Mass... Jesus is re-crucified, and the reason he can be re-crucified is the doctrine of transubstantiation, meaning the elements actually become the blood and the body of Christ. Therefore, the breaking of the bread and and the consumption of these elements is a re-crucifixion because he's there to be crucified again. I had read the quotes, I'd read Vatican, read Vatican II, understood what they thought, but nowhere was it more graphically displayed to Kim and me than when we walked around a corner in this little bitty cove where a priest was leading a mass and our our friend, uh, David Standridge, was with us. And he says, listen, come over here. I'm going to translate what he's saying. He held up the host, this round wafer, and he broke it, held it in his hands, and told this group of about 30 people who were in this little room, today, the Lord Jesus Christ is re-crucified for your sin." We heard it with our, own, with our own ears. Chills went all up and down my, my body, and I looked over to see my, my sweet wife weeping. That their hope is to get to the next mass so that Jesus could die again for their sin. That's the only way to take care of it. It's heart-rending and heart-wrenching What does it mean? John Calvin said, we can answer all of Roman Catholicism's mass that Jesus' work is continuing to be ferreted out and worked out during the mass. We can answer that all with one verse. Calvin said, just read John 19.30 where Jesus said, it is what? Finished. It's finished. If you were study and read Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10, and I, I was tempted to read both chapters. If you read chapters 9 and 10, you, you find this cycle of, of truth that the writer continues to accent, to look at, to back up, to get a high perspective, a, a lower perspective, a, 
And he simply says over and over, Jesus is the only and final sacrifice for sin. It's not in the blood of bulls and goats. It's not in the Old Testament sacrificial system. He is the end of the law. He is the final sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God slain for the sins of those who believe. That's why we take what theologians call a memorial view or understanding of the Lord's table. We'll, we'll celebrate that in just a, fi- a minute. The memorial view is it's a memorial. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a memory-garnering moment in the life of the church where we do what Jesus says, do this to remember me. Um, I was also tempted to read you a debate that happened between a 16-year-old Lady Jane Grey and the Cardinal of, of England, the highest Cardinal of England, uh, John Feckenham, and, and, and it was just too long. But in this debate, the 16-year-old who would ultimately be beheaded because of her refusal to believe that the Mass was the, the efficacious grace demonstrated for a person to be saved. But she pushes back on the, this is a 16-year-old debating <laughs> The Catholic scholar of all of England. Now, now just think about this for a moment. It's online, you can look it up, but basically she says, I, I, I am saved through Christ and Christ's word alone. And he says, yes, but Jesus said, when you eat this bread, you're eating my body and drinking my blood. And she said, he also said, I'm a door and I'm a vine. Do you not accept that Jesus can speak in figurative language? You know what he said? We'll talk about this later. No answer. I am so humbled. I I cannot commend highly enough to you um, Faith Cook's biography of Jane Grey called The Nine-Day Queen. Uh, this This is one of those life changers. Read it with a tissue box next to you. And read it with a humble heart. This, this is one of those books that will really reorient your understanding of the gospel. Your understanding of the power of the gospel in young people's lives. To see this, this young girl who was theologically astute enough to completely defeat the leading Catholic scholar in England. It's amazing. Lady Jane Grey, the nine day queen is the name of it by Faith Cook. But at stake in Luther's pushback on the Mass, in Catholics' pushback on the Mass, was Solus Christus. It was simply, if I could explain it to our junior hires, I would say the question is simply this Was Jesus' death on the cross, on Calvary, sufficient enough to pay for sins of everyone who would live after him? Sufficient enough to secure our righteous standing before God or, or was it not? If it wasn't, then you continue to crucify him in the mass and you continue to lean on your old understanding or you have faith in faith. It's critical. Is your faith resting on Christ and on Christ alone? 
Well, so here's what I want to do. I, 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 I thought we could get really distracted and lost if we, if we tried to look at all the historical framings of Solus Christus. And honestly, you have to look at every era of the church to see how Solus Christus, Christ alone, comes back in and intercepts it. For example, the, the, the doctrine of Solus Christus in the Reformation is still uh, uh, fought today, but the doctrine of Solus Christus is fought also in people who have faith in faith. It's also fought today with, um, on the pundits, the news cycle, where they get together and talk about how you get to heaven. And some say, well, any way you want to get there, you're, you're going to find your way there. I want to give you six, a half a dozen pillars to help you understand and cling to. And can I say this? Enjoy the doctrine of Christ and Christ alone. There, we could do not dozens, we could do hundreds of these. But these are six that I think are central and must be understood for any kind of growth in Christ. Second Peter 3.18 says, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope this helps us. Here's the first one. Jesus is the only way to God. Very simple. Jesus is the only way to God. Turn over to John chapter 14. We're going to be flipping around here for a few minutes. So John chapter 14, I remember when we studied this uh, almost six years ago. I was so struck by this and in, in what Jesus says in this narrative. Actually, let's let, reach back up to verse 33 in chapter 13, Jesus says to the men, this is after Judas has left the last supper. Jesus says, little children, young men, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I've told the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Then he says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I want you to hear what happened. Jesus says, I'm going to leave. Don't worry about that right now. I want you to love one another. Look at what Peter, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, says in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, how do we love one another better? No. He says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. We talk about this a lot, but sometimes chapter divisions are just not helpful. This is one that's not helpful. Because Jesus immediately says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me also. Is he talking to Peter or the disciples? I think the answer is yes. They just heard their leader be told that before 
the morning hour comes, he would deny the Lord three times. Does that not make sense that Jesus would say, don't be troubled? Indicating that they obviously were troubled. And then he goes into this amazing section of Scripture. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now, the authorized version, the old King James says, in my Father's house there are many what? Mansions. I... I I appreciate the sentiment there. When I think of being in heaven, I think it's going to be a nice place. I think it's going to be a wonderful place. Jesus is going to make a room for you and me. I don't think he'll do a shoddy job. Pretty exciting to think about that. But I want you to put yourself in their sandals in this moment at this Last Supper. When he says, my father's house, he's been telling them over and over for the last three years when they went to Jerusalem when he cleansed the temple and spoke of the robbers in my father's house, when he said, in my father's house are many dwelling places, what did they think? The temple. It was 800 yards from where they were talking. Half a mile. So he says, in my father's house, they'd always heard that to be the temple mount. In my father's house are many apartments, literally rooms, dwelling places, during that time, there were some apartments actually on the Temple Mount. On the south side, there were three stories of apartments where the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the people who would sell sacrifices and the, the money changers and, and the attendants to the temple, they, they lived there. So think about what they're thinking. Jesus is going to go to the temple, get us a place to stay, get our room ready, and become the Messiah tonight. I'm going to prepare a room, a place for you. I'm going to go make your bed. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I'm going, where I am rather, that where I am, there you may be also. And then he baits them in verse 4. And you know the way where I'm going. It's interesting. Now, remember, let's think like them for a minute. Okay, he, he's going to go 800 yards down the, the, the hill toward the Temple Mount. It would have been up probably on the, on the southwest corner of from where they were. And they knew there were people out to kill Jesus. They knew there were people out to kill them. They knew Judas had just left. They, they knew Jesus said he was just going to leave. I mean, they, they were troubled, we already found out. And then Jesus says, I'm going away and uh, I'm going to go prepare a place and... You know the, the way I'm going. When it says, you know the way I'm going, that word can be translated, you know the street I'm taking. You know the way that I'm going to go. You know how I'm going to get there. And you can see the calculus going on in their mind. Okay, they want to kill him. He's leaving us. He says, meet me there. They want to kill us. Uh, which street are we taking? King David Street? Do we take a right? How, how are we going to get there? And Jesus says, we know how to get there. Thomas I find it's interesting here that Peter doesn't say anything I think he's still saying 
going to deny. He's probably off in the corner. I'm going to deny three. What? He doesn't say anything. Now, we usually talk about Thomas and we say, what about Thomas? He's doubting Thomas. And he did that, have that doubting moment, which I, I think was proving Thomas more than doubting Thomas. Thomas is the hero here. I just sensed there was probably a space of time after verse 4. And you know the path I'm taking. You know where I'm going. Thomas speaks up and says to him, um, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how do we know the road? How, how do we know the way? I hear what you're saying, and I'm, I'm supposed to know. I don't know. And I can guarantee you all the disciples, other disciples were glad he asked. And then Jesus says, John 14, 6. And we realize immediately he's not talking about the temple mount. He's not talking about the temple. And he's not talking about apartments there. He's talking about, here it is, access to God. Getting to God. He says, I am the road. I'm the way. You want to know this road, the path? You want to know the divine GPS to heaven? I'm the GPS. I'm the way. I'm also the truth, which can be translated. I'm the faithfulness, the faithful one. And I'm life, the life. And then the statement, and no one comes to the Father except or but through me. Do you understand the profundity of that statement? Do you understand the expansive nature of no one? No one comes to the Father except through me? Now, we'll talk another time about what about those who've never heard. It's a hard question. It's a hard answer. But instead of being constrained and confused over that question, we ought to be saying, let's go tell them. Paul was saying this morning. He's the only way to heaven. Solus Christus, Christ alone. No other religion, no other path, no other person, no other way. Now keep that in your mind and turn over to see what Peter, who eventually does speak of this, says in 1 Peter chapter 3. We call this the, um, the John 3.16 of Peter, but it's 1 Peter 3.18 actually. How do we get to God? How do we get access to God through Jesus? Peter answers it explicitly. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died in the place of, as a representative for us, for sins. Once for all. He, the just, for us, the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Here's the means. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He is both crucified and alive. He's the only way. Do you understand what a privilege has been given to us? We know the only way to heaven. That's profound. 
Number two, looking at Solus Christus. Jesus is our only righteousness. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think we sang this in the last couple of weeks. This is... (laughs) I'm just amazed again, even looking at this passage. If you ever want proof that the author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit, you read a passage like this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Well, let's back up to 20. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How do we do that? Here's the theology. He, God, God made him, Christ, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I appreciate what the New American Standard does here, but it's, it's not as, as punchy as the Greek is. But you've got to distinguish between the word sin as a noun and sin as a verb. There are some words that are both nouns and verbs. This context will tell you. This is the noun sin, not the verb sin. This is, this is how it, it reads. God made Jesus who knew no sin, sin on our behalf. Not the verb, the noun. He made him He turned him into, he became sin on our behalf. Just stop and think about that for a moment. And it wasn't just generic sin on our behalf. It was our sin. You want a motivation to not look at things you shouldn't on the internet? You want a motivation to be nicer to your wife and your children? You want a motivation to to come to church? You want a motivation to, to obey in any sense of the divine commands of Scripture? You remember that he made Jesus your sin on your behalf to take on the penalty and the just condemnation in the moments of his crucifixion. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have have you forsaken me? Why am I forsaken? You know what the answer to that is? It's right here in this verse. Because he became our sin. But you got to keep reading the verse. (laughs) So that we might become the righteousness of God in him, all of God's righteousness. Since Jesus is God, was in him and transfers to us in our account, Romans 3 and 4 say, he gives us Jesus' righteousness and he takes our sin. It's not enough, think about this, It's not enough to be forgiven of all your sin to go to heaven. It's not enough. That takes you back to zero. We need the righteousness of Christ 
which allows God to allow us in. That we, he becomes our sin, we become his righteousness. You've heard it said on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he lived our unrighteous lives so that in heaven he could treat us as if we had lived Christ's righteous life. And if you're smart, you'll say that's just completely unfair. And you're right. And to our benefit. Jesus is our only righteousness. Now when you say solus Christus, that's important because nothing we can ever do Multiple masses, merit, prayers, adding uh, good works, good, nothing will ever add enough to what Christ has already done. He's done it all. Who he is and what he's done. Do you understand that? It's so important. He's completely sufficient in who he is and what he's accomplished. Which brings us to number three. Jesus is sufficient for all we need. Jesus is sufficient for all we need. Second Peter chapter one. I love this passage. Second Peter one verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He's saying that knowing Jesus and knowing God are synonymous here. Grace and peace can be accomplished through the knowledge of God. That, there's so so much powerful theology right there. This is knowing God. This is pursuing God. This is knowing about him. And then verse three, if you ever underline things in your Bible, boy, you ought to know this. This is a, this is a memory verse this year. Seeing that his divine power, think about this sufficiency, has granted to us everything pertaining to life, the living, and godliness, the pleasing God, through the true knowledge of him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who has called us by his own glory and excellence. Do you see the, the sufficiency there? He's given us everything we need. I was thinking all week about that passage in Romans 15 where Paul says that we are all competent to counsel. He's given us all we need. We don't need any experts to deal with any sin beyond the Holy Spirit and a Bible. I want people to be experts. I want people to study and learn and be, be, be a, a more skilled at wielding the word of God. And, and yet we have all we need. We have all. Do you believe that? That we have all we need in Christ. Or do you just like the song when we sing it? Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. I like that song. It's a sweet song. Do you believe it? Do you understand that that's true? That Jesus is our life. He's sufficient for all we need. He gives us these two phrases, everything pertaining to life and godliness. That means anything in life and every, every way that God wants us to please him. So not only life in general, but the way that we can please God. He's provided it for us. Through the true knowledge of Christ, it says so right there. Number four. Jesus is our access to the Father and accessible to us. I know that sounds a little bit like number one, but it's a little bit different. And for that, we need to go back over for a moment to John chapter 14. He's our access to the Father, that's what we've learned, but also accessible 
to us. This is such a sweet invitation for, for your heart, your life, your devotion. <laughs> Look at the next verse in verse seven after we stopped in verse six. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. You say, what was he talking about here? Philip said, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. We want sufficiency. You know God. You come from God. Would you just give us a glimpse of the father? They had already heard the father. Remember, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Peter, James, and John at least heard that. You know they told the other men about that. They heard from the cloud. They heard the heaven. When Jesus was baptized, this is my beloved son in whom we're well pleased. They said, we've heard of this voice. Show us God. Show us the Father. Jesus says in verse 9, have I been with you so long and yet you've not come to know me? Philip, here it is. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? God, Jesus not only gives us access to God, but God is accessible to us through Christ. He invites us. Just flip over to John 17. Verse three, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Knowing God means knowing Christ. To see Christ is to know the Father. And then I have to, you have to see this, 2 Corinthians chapter four. 2 Corinthians four, the, the whole chapter of 2 Corinthians 4 is one of my favorites. Um, Where do I start? Um, Verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is the what can be seen of what cannot be seen because he's invisible. Colossians 1 says the same thing. And then Paul says in verse 5, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ as the Lord. Ourselves just as your slaves for Jesus' sake. And here it is, verse 6. For God who said, creation, light shall shine out of darkness. The creator God the Father is the one who, uh, who has, listen to how this stacks up, has shown, brightly shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Christ. If you've seen me, Jesus says to Philip, you've seen the Father. He's our access to the Father, Father, and he's accessible and comes to us in Christ. Just a couple more. Number five, Jesus is the determining factor for everyone's eternity. I know we've said it similarly, but this is critical. Jesus is the determining factor for everyone's eternity. Eternity. He's determinative. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 
verse 4. Peter says, Coming to Jesus, to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it's contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. 1 Peter 2, 7, This precious value then is for you who believe. Now, stop right there. I love the AV uh, version, uh, translation of this. It's, 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 it's kind of difficult Greek, but it's, it's, it's very... Um, can I use the word precious since it's here? The NAS is this precious value then is for you who believe. This precious value is for you who believe. It's for you who believe. King James says it like this and so does the Greek. To those who believe, he is precious. Said another way, he is valuable. More valuable than everything. Our mission statement is to value Jesus Christ, what? Above all else in every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. He's determined. If he's precious to us, you're a, chief, you're, you're a, you're a stone with him. He's building us into a, a, this, this precious temple for his worship. But... For those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this they were also appointed. One of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament, unless you've studied, like we have, Romans 9 and Romans 10, which says God is completely sovereign and yet we're completely responsible. And, and, and you say, I, I don't know how that works its way out. It's like looking down two train tracks. They eventually come together and it comes together in heaven. Look at the responsibility. They're disobedient to the word and to that they were also appointed. There's the both sides of the coin there. The point he's making is that Jesus is himself the determining factor as the cornerstone. Either you build your life on him or you stumble over him and end up in a Christless eternity. And that all actually builds up to where we began in verse, excuse me, in number six. And for this, I want you to see this, please. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Number six. Jesus must be understood and known through Scripture. Jesus must be understood and known through Scripture. Paul spoke of the possibility of another Jesus. This is really interesting to me. One of my, my favorite passages, Bob actually says, I want you to preach on that at least once a year. He loves this passage so much. Paul says, verse 3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches, here it is, another Jesus whom you have, we have not preached. He goes on, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted. You, 
You bear this beautifully. In other words, you're too easy. Here's the fear. This is my fear as a shepherd here at this flock. This is our fear as elders. Is that some unwitting, sweet, precious believer could be hoodwinked into believing Jesus is not as the Bible explains him to be. It's, it's another Jesus. Just watch the evening pundits. They are constantly recasting and redefining Jesus. Oh, my Jesus would never. My Jesus wouldn't do that. He would never condemn. He would accept everybody. Well, that is your Jesus, but it's not the one of the Bible. And here's, here's what you need to remember. I understand that it's easy to throw rocks at these pundits. If our minds are not continually nurtured and saturated with the truth about Jesus, we will end up creating a Jesus of our own invention in our minds. He won't be the one of Scripture. And he knew that. And that's why he said, as often as you receive the Lord's table, I want you to do it to do what? Remember me as he is known and defined in Scripture. Solus Christus for you and me, I think, I think, is most aptly applied when we understand that our entire existence is to serve, know, love, and share who Jesus is and what he's done. The gospel is Jesus. Eternal life, John 17, is Jesus. So it's easy to beat up Roman Catholicism in the time of the Reformation. It's easy to beat up those who would have faith in faith even today. But the bigger question is, is our faith really resting on our understanding and love for the Savior who was dead and is now alive? We are Christians, little Christs. How important is this? Jesus said in John, excuse me, in Matthew 7, many, not some, not a few, many will come to me on the great day and say, Lord, Lord, they call him Lord twice. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and that in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. In other words, your faith wasn't, wasn't based on me. It's amazing that Jesus sees himself in that passage as the one who will be the judge on the throne and only God is judge and tells you who we're dealing with in this man from Nazareth. So how is your doctrine of solus Christus? How exclusive is your gospel? How deep and rich is your understanding of Christ? Parents, the greatest gift you could ever give, and I really mean this. We say this a lot, but this is, this, is, this is the Bible's truth. The greatest gift you can ever give your children is that Jesus is precious to you. That they understand my mom and my dad would sacrifice anything, would refocus everything because of the Savior that they know. I just wonder, we, we, 
theological study, we come to passages like this. I just wonder if any of you think, I'm going to do that someday. Maybe tomorrow, it's Monday. Maybe the first of the year, it's January. Maybe when I get older. Maybe when I get diagnosed with a life-threatening disease. When, when are you going to submit to Jesus as the Lord and the master of your life? Every part, every dimension. What did the Puritans say? He is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. My hope is found a resting place, not in the Bicer Creed. Summarize the rest of the hymn, it says, but it's in Christ, in Christ alone. We sing so much about it. We talk so much about it. It's just perfect that the Lord would allow us to, to come to the Lord's table tonight and, and, and to, to drink of the sufficiency of Christ. You ever think that he might, let me ask it another way. Do you ever forget that he's sufficient and sufficient enough? Sufficient enough for raising children, sufficient enough for a healthy marriage, sufficient enough for resolving conflict, sufficient enough for the most difficult trial you can imagine, sufficient enough for the day of our deaths. If we read our Bibles correctly in these just few verses, then we know that solus Christus means that he is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness.